Welcome to our third annual EO ESOP Podcast Summer School. We've selected some of our favorite episodes over the past year to bring you all summer long. We're going to spend the summer catching our breath and recharging our batteries. We're also going to be wearing masks and practicing social distancing. I hope you will too. Join us for new content each Friday throughout the summer on the ESOP Minicast. You can support our work by subscribing or following us wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to the EO Podcast, where we amplify and celebrate all forms of employee ownership. Hello, my friends. Thank you for listening. My name is Brett Kiesling, and as it says on my business cards, I'm a passionate advocate for employee ownership. I'm pleased to bring you this conversation with Hilary Bell, who's a co-founder of Project Equity. Project Equity is a national, nonprofit organization devoted to growing employee ownership. They work with governments, foundations, other nonprofits, and businesses looking to mainstream all forms of employee ownership. Last week in episode 112 of the podcast, I was joined by Allison Lingain, who is Hillary's co-founder of Project Equity. You can find episode 112 as well as all of our archived episodes at theesoppodcast.com. In this episode, Hillary describes her path to becoming an EO advocate and practitioner, and she'll share details of a new white paper she authored, which hopes to bring much of the empirical data that supports employee ownership into a single resource. At the end of the episode, I'll tell you how you can get a copy of the white paper. And now, here's my conversation with Hillary Abel. Hillary, how are you today? Very well, thanks, Brett. Happy to be with you. Well, thank you for coming on and sharing your story in Project Equity with our listeners. We did in last week's podcast feature an interview with your co-founder, Allison Lingain. It's a pleasure for me to uh, now follow up and have a second conversation with you, Hillary, because you and Allison both have great stories. So with that, you went to some sort of guidance counselor in sixth grade, and they said you were destined <laughs> to be an employee ownership advocate, and your life has played out perfectly. Uh, why don't you tell us, how do you find yourself uh, with Project Equity? It has been a really interesting journey and has been the culmination of work I've, I've done over many years, uh, but I was not expecting to become an employee ownership advocate and practitioner. In fact, it was the experience of being an employee owner that, that turned me onto it, and that was, gosh, almost 30 years ago now, not quite, but when I was in my um, early and mid-20s, I had the wonderful experience of being a worker owner at a company called Equal Exchange. And I, I landed there not because I was planning to go into business and to sell coffee, which was part of what I did there, but rather because I was really interested in human rights. I had done some work with issues in Latin America and was very fascinated by that region. And Equal Exchange was selling fair trade coffee from small farmer cooperatives in Latin America. So I ended up at Equal Exchange in my early 20s and had an incredible experience there, not only learning that business can be a tool for social change and business can make the world a better place. And in fact, without business doing that, there's no way we'll, we'll ever get to the society that I hope we can have. Um, but I also was personally very empowered by the experience of, of being an employee owner. And part of that was getting elected to the board of directors by my peers and um, being able to help set business strategy, even though I was someone who was new to the business world and was learning from my, my coworkers and, and leaders of the company, as well as from 
outside board members who were not employee owners but brought critical skill to the to the board. And in fact, one of them was an early leader of what we now call the impact investor movement. She's a, a nun from the Adrian Dominican sisters, um, who were some of the first to, to invest in companies that could make the world better. And another was an early leader of the triple bottom line business movement at Stonyfield Yogurt. So needless to say, I learned a lot from both of them. I loved learning about governance and setting business strategy. And then on the, on the sort of compensation and profit sharing side, you know, five years after being there, I moved on for, for personal reasons and had a nest egg from my, you know, my employee ownership stake in the company and I was paying off student debt and that kind of thing. So I probably wouldn't have had that otherwise. So also experienced a little bit of that asset building and wealth building potential that is so important in employee ownership. You know, another part of it was that part of my job was selling coffee. Another, another part of my job was what we called producer relations and I got to visit uh, farmer cooperatives that were made up of very small-scale farmers, independent family farmers um, in several countries, Peru, Colombia, and El Salvador. And these farmers were organized into cooperatives. It was a shared ownership model for, for small farmers. And because they were part of a cooperative, they were able to gain more control over the whole value chain that their coffee was part of. So rather than selling to a middleman who sells to another middleman who sells to another middleman, and there's profit going into all those layers, leaving very little for the farmer, which is pretty pretty typical in international commodities, um, and even you know even in farming in the U.S. in many cases, these farmers were able to sell through their own cooperative, which was a business that they co-owned, and then through the fair trade model, they were able to sell directly to an international buyer, equal exchange, and then then to others. And what did they do with that profit? So I got to visit the farms, get to know some of the families and the, the leaders of these businesses. And what they were doing with that profit was, you know, number one, buying shoes and books for their kids so that their kids could be better educated. Number two, they were creating health clinics and other community development um, institutions. And number three, they were also improving their businesses. So they were doing things like building coffee processing plants. So not only could they export directly, but they could process their own their own coffee and get that part of the of the value of their product as well. So not only did I love being an employee owner myself, but I also got to see how shared ownership in a in a farmer cooperative and the link between companies that all all share ownership with their stakeholders. So with equal exchange, connecting to the farmer cooperatives that the wealth that was generated by the work we all did was shared more broadly and it meant better communities for everybody. So that's what's kept me passionate about this many, many years later um, and eventually led to my prior role and then to Project Equity. It's fascinating because it also could have led to a career, and I'm not being smart, but in coffee sales. You know, you could have stayed and mastered that. You know, there are so many different different paths that you could have taken. What I find yeah. very interesting is you saw firsthand when you talk about uh, treating employees equitably uh, through employee ownership or otherwise, and you talk about the farmers and the employees of the, the sellers being able to share in the wealth that it's created, it is important that you've drawn the connection to and all of the good that comes with it as a result of it. So obviously it was a successful business model, you know, very broadly speaking, but it's a business model that has tangible good results, not just for the employees, not just for the farmers, but the communities as a whole. I mean, that's wonderful. 
That's right. Yeah, you really hit the nail on the head with that summary, Brett. Absolutely. So at some point, there was an MBA that was minding her own business named Allison Lingain, and she somehow <laughs> yes. connected with you, and and she has said that you turned her on to employee ownership. So I guess that would bring to the formation of Project Equity, but where were you and, and what led to uh, Project Equity getting started? When, when I met Allison, I was the executive director of a, another nonprofit that at the time was, was called Wages, and that stands for Women's Action to Gain Economic Security. So we were working with low-income women in the San Francisco Bay Area, helping them form employee-owned companies. And so that was when I met Allison. And what was so impactful to me about the work that we did at that organization during the eight years that I was there was that we I knew the women we were working with pretty closely. It was a relatively small organization. So I saw the effect on them individually and on their families really up close. So I saw, you know, women start to, in some cases, become the primary breadwinners in their families, start to speak up more in their families and communities and have that sense of agency and empowerment that can come with an ownership stake. And we also collected a lot of data about the economic impact on the individual women and also on their families. So we were able to really understand the the impact of employee ownership on these women at a very granular level, financially speaking. And not only were their individual incomes doubling and tripling in many cases uh, because they were working full-time, these were home cleaning businesses, so they had more control over their schedules. They, The company was committed to giving everybody full-time work, which they did. They also had health insurance for the first time. And when we looked at the impact on their household income, the first year that we measured it, my, my first year at that organization, the household incomes increased 40% from before the women had joined these cooperatives to one or two years later. So I was pretty blown away by that. You know, I don't know if, if you've ever had the experience of your family income increasing by 40%, but I think few of, the ha- few of us have, and, and if we have, it's been pretty pretty exciting. Um, sure, even absolutely. Even better than that, yeah. Yeah, and even even better than that, we we kept measuring it year after year, and about eight or nine years later, that average increase in family income was actually up to eighty percent. So that was even more exciting. And so so back to meeting Allison and starting Project Equity for me, um, the Hillary part of that was that knowing that the impact was both personally, professionally, and financially very powerful for these women. I was very interested in, in scaling up that impact, um, not only for the the Latina women we were working with in the San Francisco Bay Area, but for other other kinds of low and middle wage workers uh, locally and around the country. And so I knew that that powerful impact was possible, but I didn't know very much about how to scale it. You know, we worked on a strategic plan and we did all kinds of things and we did grow the organization. Um, but one of the things that I loved when I met Allison was was the the shared, you know, sense of mission and what we were both hoping to see in the world in terms of how our economy could better serve everyone who's part of it, but also that she had worked for larger scale uh, and really scale-oriented mission-driven companies. When part of the light bulb that went off when we decided to start Project Equity was that we realized that I was bringing a lot of in-the-trenches work, really hands-on work of developing employee-owned companies. The ones we did in my prior organization were actually startups. And Allison was bringing this amazing experience with 
taking organizations to scale. So that combination, you know, sort of being two two sides of a coin, if you will, or two parts of a yin and a yang, or however you want to think of it, um, was part of the inspiration for us to to try to do something together. Am I right? Project Equity was started in 2006? Actually, no. Um, We launched in 2014 officially, so we're six years old now. And Allison and I were sort of scheming and, you know, working working without pay uh, before that for a couple of years. In Allison's podcast, she talked a little bit about working with the uh, local governments and uh, working out with businesses. What role do you see Project Equity doing the most good, doing the most help to uh, promote employee ownership? We see ourselves as both practitioners of employee ownership and, and experts in helping companies understand the opportunity that employee ownership presents and also taking them from the assessment stage all the way through to the execution of an employee ownership transition and even post-transition support. So we have a client services team that supports companies for two years after the transition happens so that they can you know, practice open book management, that they can practice build an ownership culture, that they can have healthy democratic governance in the in the cooperative businesses we work with and in the ESOPs where they may have employees participating on the board or pass through voting for certain issues, making sure that those things are done really well and that employee owners are, are understanding the finances of their company and what it means to be an employee owner. So on the one hand, we are practitioners would be the word that I use because we believe that we need more employee ownership in this country in order for it to become more normal, more common, and easier to do. So part of our organization is is doing it, actually helping companies transition. And then the other part of our organization is is creating demand and helping to build a field, a broader field of employee ownership where many kinds of stakeholders will support the work. Um, and working with government partners at the local level, we're starting more now in the context of COVID-19 and the need to have resilient business models like employee ownership really featured strongly in the recovery and in the economy that comes next. We're starting to do more more talking to policymakers and engaging government at the state level and and national level, along with with others in the in the employee ownership movement. <clears throat> So, so, yes, we see ourselves engaging stakeholders across the spectrum to create a world, a, a country, I should say, where economic development happens in part through employee ownership and where models that create more good for, for employees, for businesses, and for society are really held up by those who share that goal. I understand you also put a lot of your attention on foundations and funding sources. Uh, is that educational? You know, how do you work with them to support what you're trying to do? It is educational, and it's also a fundamental part of Project Equity's revenue stream. So we are a nonprofit, and we do get fees and and revenue from the companies that we work with. Yet much of our budget actually is funded by foundations because our work matches so nicely with priorities that they have around things like inclusive economies, family economic success, racial equity, asset building, things like that. Being a nonprofit enables us to do things that we hope foundations will do with many other nonprofits around the country, which is to support the mainstreaming of employee ownership, to, to change the narrative about who workers are and what they can do and how they can share in ownership, to create demand for employee ownership. 
and then also to support the transition of successful companies that employ low and middle wage workers, which is where a project equity focuses. Many of those are able to fully, you know, pay for the transition themselves because they're strong companies. Some have lower margins and, and may need, need some help with, say, the post-transaction support or just enabling organizations like Project Equity to, to build up the programs that can then help companies succeed. And there's also, you know, long, long-term capacity building for the field and for, for employee owners, especially those that are lower income. Um, and finally, there, there are startup employee-owned companies that, if they're based on proven success factors, they um, generally, you know, could really benefit from, from philanthropic support. So we're working with foundations, you know, ma- major donors and, and corporate funders as well to create more of a – it's also risk capital would be a good way to say it, you know, to create more risk capital and to create more of that R&D capital for the employee ownership movement as we work to scale it. One of the things that it seems to me that you're doing that I haven't heard before, and your emphasis on employee ownership is spot on, the potential businesses that you'll work with, again, you know, a lot of baby boomers retiring and that sort of thing, uh, and that's spot on. But I love the interplay between the foundations and uh, drawing that connection between employee ownership, again, being at least a partial solution for what the foundations are looking for. And it seems to me that will help you with kind of the grassroots, you know, putting employee ownership on the foundation's radar is is in many ways uh, as important as a successful transaction. I really agree with that, Brett. The reason we have focused Project Equity both on, on working on transactions and on engaging stakeholders like government, like foundations, like business, the business support ecosystem that is not yet engaged in employee ownership is that we see see both as very necessary. So our on-the-ground practice with converting companies is really critical to our ability to to promote the right approaches, to do the education um, with, with other stakeholders, and then our ability to work with those stakeholders is Without that, we couldn't couldn't scale this work. And, and Project Equity's origins, as you know, has, has always been grounded in the knowledge that employee ownership is is powerful for low and middle wage workers as both a quality job and a wealth building strategy. And that therefore we want to scale it, and we can't scale it without partners of all kinds all over the country. And the funny thing is, it is obviously the focus for very understandable reasons is on wages, but there is so much else that goes along with it. Uh, I was a CEO for two and a half years of uh, 100% ESOP. And one of the first things I did, and this goes back uh, 10 or 11 years, one of the first things that I had done uh, when I joined the company, and it was right after it became an ESOP, was uh, reviewed uh, and revised the time off uh, uh, policies of the company. In the past, uh, the company had specific sick days and personal days and that kind of thing. And we moved really quickly to just paid time off. And I remember thinking at the time, and I still very strongly believe it, that if a service technician's fourth grade child had a chorus concert, I wanted the service technician to go to the chorus concert and not have to make up some excuse at work. You know, so the policies (laughs) that come in, uh, in other words, kind of what my approach has been uh, coming to employee ownership from kind of the corporate and transactional side is I've been fortunate enough to have positions in my career that afforded me certain benefits and uh, uh, things that I could do, like going to my kids' uh, concerts and that sort of thing. 
I just wanted all of the employees to have it. So that ties into the culture and and the uh, policies that you work with the companies to make sure that they're functioning well. And and the other point uh, that is driven home to me, uh, Hillary, if I may, and I say this with a little bit of humility, when my kids were in junior high and high school and they're both in their 20s now, I'd go to uh, open houses at schools, and I would uh, take notice of the fact of how many parents weren't at open houses to meet the teachers and orientation and that kind of thing. And now I happen to be at a point in my life where I've spent much of the five years traveling extensively as part of my job. And as a result, my, my friends are often in the service industry. And I've come to understand that if you work in a restaurant and you're not given your schedule till a Monday, you don't have any chance to go to your kid's thing because there's there's no provision for it. So are these kind of the broader yeah. life quality things that that are important to you? Absolutely, absolutely. I love your story about, about PTO and the company you ran as CEO. One of the things that I, I call out in this white paper we'll be publishing soon called The Case for Employee Ownership is that fle- flexible scheduling, you know, the quality of jobs and flexible scheduling is such a critical job quality component. I, I love your restaurant example, and I'll tell a story of one of the employee owners I've worked with closely at Project Equity. Um, her name is Sarah Vegas, and she worked in the restaurant industry for many years. She'd gone to culinary school. She was very serious about her career in the restaurant industry and just loved it. But she had some some horror stories, like showing up to work one day and the restaurant actually just being closed with a note on the door saying, sorry, we're out of business. See you later. <laughs> so no notice, no, you know, no severance pay, nothing. Um, and also she, Sarah's a single mom. So working kind of late hours and, and the variable hours in a restaurant was really challenging. We met her when she was an employee at Niles Pie Company, which is a bakery and they weren't yet employee-owned. We helped them through their transition. But Sarah had sought out Niles Pie because of being a single mother and wanting more stable hours. And she became a leader in the transition to employee ownership. She's now on the board of directors. And in addition to being the kitchen manager, she's one of the employee-owner leaders. And she tells the story of, of getting um, profit-sharing for the first time in, in a cooperative that's called Patronage. And when she received those that profit, it was the first time she received a check of, you know, many thousands of dollars. And she said, wow, now I have a nest egg. And she talked to her son about it, and she said, you had to sacrifice, too, for me to become a business owner together with the other employee owners in my company. And so I'm going to give you a little piece of this, and you can decide what to do with it, and then we're going to put the rest away as our, our first family nest egg. So, so that's an example of the security that, that Sarah, being in the food service industry, has gotten through the cooperative. And you mentioned service industries more broadly. I certainly saw it in the home cleaning businesses that I worked with in my, in my prior role, where to run a good business, you, you're able to, you have to find that balance of, you know, doing right by the employees and, and making the business work as a business, because without that, it doesn't work for anybody, including in, in employee-owned companies, of course. But I think employee-owned companies do a really good job of balancing those needs. So what we did in these home cleaning businesses was, in conversation with the worker owners, and they helped to, to define these policies, we would require a certain number of hours a day for each employee to be available for us to schedule their jobs with clients. 
We also scheduled every other Thursday morning. We didn't have client jobs out in the field because we wanted the employee owners to be together for training and for whatever input they were giving to board-level decisions. And But once we had set the basic parameters of people's broad availability, there was a choice they could make between how early they wanted to start um, so that if they wanted to drop their kids off at school, they could take the 9 a.m., start time, or if they wanted to add someone else who could do that and they wanted to start at 7 so they could be home by 3.30 or 4, whatever that time was, they could make that choice. So we've, we've seen that um, in many, many employee-owned companies, and I think that's a very powerful, powerful benefit. There are a lot of good social policy reasons to treat your employees well or your employee owners, but in my experience, it's also really good business. It is not, you know, how do we treat the employees well and we're going to run out of money. It's a function of uh, Sarah, who you referenced uh, with Niles. Boy, I imagine she goes to work each day with a little more spring in her step, a, you know, a little happier than, than a colleague who isn't an employee owner because she's part of something. It's what you want, what I want. Turns out, Everybody wants the same thing, and this is a great path for it. One of the things that I'm curious about, and it's because I came from the ESOP world where next to impossible to have a startup ESOP, uh, as you know, it, it just be, would be very difficult for a trustee to approve something as, as too speculative with all of the mm-hmm. ESOP uh, oversight. So I don't have a whole lot of firsthand experience about somebody who would look to start uh, a co-op or collective, you know, a smaller business, you mentioned it can be done if it's built on criteria. I imagine co-ops, uh, you know, restaurants you've talked about or, or, or food uh, processors, that sort of thing. Can you talk a little bit about somebody who might want to start a business and want to look at it being employee-owned from the beginning? Sure. We have certainly seen a lot of entrepreneurs come together with other entrepreneurs and start something in an employee-owned model. Uh, Namaste Solar is a wonderful example of that. They later became what they call an employee-owned cooperative, but they started as a solar company, a design installation. They were started by several engineers who had worked for another company or companies and wanted to do it differently. They wanted to create a better culture. And so they kind of knew about stock options and that kind of thing, but they didn't know about cooperatives. I, I don't know whether they knew about ESOS, but it wouldn't have fit anyway because it was a startup. So, so they started with kind of a self-made format, and then they later found out um, about the cooperative format and, and migrated over to that. So, so they're a great example, and essentially their origin story was, you know, people who wanted to do something different and wanted to do it together. Then, then there's folks who – you can also have an entrepreneur who starts a company, gets it going, and, and just includes people in, in decision-making and in profit-sharing, but is still sort of the entrepreneurial leader of the company. And there are people who are able to balance, you know, the shared ownership together with that kind of sole entrepreneur um, talent and persona that a lot of people who start businesses have. The other, the other model that I'm most familiar with that we did in my my prior nonprofit was for a nonprofit to start um, a worker cooperative, or could be done with, you know, another approach to employee ownership as well. Employee ownership trusts are another interesting model when you have sort of a, a mission orientation to the to the business. And the way that we did it was the nonprofit work kind of took the role of the entrepreneur, if you will. So we, we did the business plan. We, we knew the industry we were working in, and we provided management. It's, it's not entirely dissimilar from, you know, a venture capitalist model, to be honest, um, or a private equity model where 
where another entity is running the company for a period of time. So we, we called it an incubation model, and the nonprofit um, provided management that we knew we could support and that would be able to do the management function. And if they couldn't, we would figure out what to do about that. We also had a training program for the worker owners, not only in their frontline frontline jobs, but also in what it meant to be a worker owner, how to serve on the board of directors, all of that. And we played a role in governance. So so I chaired the board, for example, of, of two of the companies we started for the first uh, year or two and then transitioned in another another board chair. So it's really the, the best practice that we see, um, especially for those who are wanting to create better jobs and a sustainable employee-owned company for folks who have a lot of barriers um, or, or haven't had that opportunity before some of the best practices we put in place were to make a long-term commitment to that development, not just to train people and then expect it to all run smoothly from there, um, and also to support participatory management that could work with worker owners and their voice and their role on the board, um, which is not not a typical startup situation for most <laughs> for most sure. entrepreneurs. Um, and then also to to mentor the governance and and we did um, you know play a direct role and actually had had control of the board for the first couple of years until the the board and the company were really doing well. That is really cool. That's a a very cool approach and it's one of the advantages that someone like Project Equity can do and your setup that you know a a traditional paid business advisor a wouldn't necessarily cover that breadth of stuff. But yeah. uh, that. That's a very all-inclusive approach. That's great. That's right. And it, it does carry over to the, the transition work that Project Equity does. We, we don't actually work on startups at Project Equity except for a rare, a rare project here and there. Um, but that model of holistic long-term support is, is very much core to our um, transition services and what we call our Thrive Program, which is the post-transition support for the companies we work with. This might be a little bit out of left field, but but one of the realities of the uh, pandemic is that there is going to be reshuffling of the business world in ways that, that I think all we understand is we really don't understand what's coming next and how this is going to play out. And I'm not pleased when I hear of any business entity or business structure uh, facing challenges or that sort of thing. Uh, as we're going through this in real time, I think we're kind of all in this together. But one of the things that I think is is really interesting is the uh, gig economy. And obviously there are challenges with Uber, Lyft, uh, where people are not moving around so much. Uh, Airbnb is in trouble for a lot of different ways. And uh, even companies that are doing well, Grubhub, Uber Eats, are, are not without a huge slew of controversy. I'm comfortable with the gig economy, but, but Uber and Lyft and Grubhub and whatnot – seems to me would so benefit under an employee ownership model, would there be a good opportunity to find a way to get employee ownership to have a stronger role in the gig economy? Too early to tell, or and it may be outside mm. of your realm? Yeah, it, it is outside of my realm, but I'm happy to, to share some thoughts on it. And I, I do think it's too early to tell, and I'm grateful for the folks who are, are working on it. Um, I just just received something in my inbox this morning about a course that's being offered through the New School for Social Research together with, with Mondragon University in Spain, which you may know Mondragon is the largest worker cooperative conglomerate in the world, and I imagine one of the largest employee-owned companies in the world as well, um, working on, on gig economy and what they call platform platform cooperatives. And I know there's a number of folks who've been both talking about this and working on some kind of early business models to get get some gig economy cooperatives going. 
I agree with you. It, it is a growing part of the economy. I think that we sometimes, because it is growing so much and it gets so much attention, we sometimes think it's a bigger part of the economy than it actually is. It's still, you know, the vast majority of, of workers are still employees of of companies. Um, at the same time, it it's it's only going to keep growing, and I, I do believe that solutions to it are really important. One one thing I'll mention is the the whole staffing industry is kind of, you know, overlaps a lot with the gig economy. You know, when I was a teenager, I remember being a Kelly girl and going to temp in an office, and so I understood staffing to be temporary work, but it actually no longer is. A huge portion of some of the big-name tech companies, for example, in our daily lives, like like Google, um, are actually sourced by by through staffing companies and and by gig workers, not by regular employees, even of those large corporations. And the the staffing world intersects with all industries, as I understand it. There are a couple of interesting um, companies. There's one called Turning Basin Labs and another one called Obron, which started in the staffing industry and have or are in the staffing industry and have kind of cooperative ownership models within that. And those are very early stage, and I think they will be developing some some important lessons for us all to learn from. Um, the other thing I'll say about it is that part of what is so inspiring and beneficial about employee ownership to me is that it balances the interests of stakeholders. So you, you still have management, and, and management has its responsibility and authority, and you have employee owners, and they have their responsibility and their roles well-defined, and you have you can also have outside investors. I think part of where our economy has gotten so thrown off and where the wealth gap um, you know, between the, the sort of folks at the top and the folks at the bottom of the economic spectrum and the diminishing middle class, as well as the, the racial wealth gap, which is a real, a real problem for everybody, no matter what, what race you are. That has been driven by a lot by the, the outsized um, emphasis on the financial investors, I think, in these companies, and the, the priorities have gotten out of balance. So I think that that's one of the challenges in in the platform economy or in the gig economy is that these big companies have, you know, they're very heavy on capital. And um, I don't know anything about the roles of the investors. I'm not speaking to that specifically. I'm just saying they're very, very capital intensive. So I think that'll be one of the challenges for the gig economy as it looks to employee ownership and potentially to cooperative models as well. But I think those are challenges we can solve. And I think there's a lot of interest in the investor world in, in supporting better business models um, and having maybe fewer of their bets or uh, so fewer of their bets fail and more of their bets pay off. And I think that's part of what employee ownership can bring. I think one of the challenges just in my view is that uh, the investor world and, and you had mentioned private equity earlier, they uh, need to understand that for employee ownership to be successful, uh, it's not how much money can be driven out of the company to the investor, but rather how much money stays in the company. And so for me, the, you know, what we hear about is the, uh, you know, old school, you know, Wall Street financiers who go in and strip and, and, and sell off and that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, until a lot of that attitude changes, it's just not conducive 
to what employee ownership is. So that's a challenge, you know, obviously, uh, uh, the time will tell and see how it plays out. You had mentioned the white paper, and then I had actually switched this back. I know you've been working on it uh, for quite a bit, but can you share the highlights? What do you hope people get out of the white paper? What do you hope to do with it or, or share with it what you will? The, the title of the paper is The Case for Employee Ownership, Why Philanthropy and Government Should Invest in This Powerful Business Model. So my hope is that it will be a resource and a, a really powerful tool for employee ownership advocates or even people just curious about it to, to learn about it and to engage, especially philanthropy and government in advancing employee ownership because we feel that those are two sectors that if they really get, get on board or I'll say when they get really get on board, I think we can build this movement so much faster and better. And one of the things that's unique about this paper, there's so many good research publications that have been done and organizations like the National Center for Employee Ownership who do an amazing job of, of kind of curating that research coming out of the ESOP sector. There's also really great anecdotal evidence and some very good studies coming out of the cooperative sector as well. But nobody that I know of has put together the, the evidence base from both the worker cooperative field and the ESOP sector into one place. And to us, we, we believe in broad-based employee ownership, regardless of what format it takes. We know it has incredible benefits. So what I wanted to do here was put it all in one place. Um, I really wanted to a- answer the question of that some of our funders were asking us around along the lines of, you know, are these isolated cases? We can see that this is powerful for some businesses and some workers, but are these isolated cases? Does the conversion strategy really work? Um, why should we invest in this? And what I thought I was going to find was that we needed more data. And what I actually found is that there's plenty of data, both from the ESOP space and from the worker cooperative field. So what I wanted to do was get that question of whether it works out of the way and have one place that, that anyone talking to someone who could make a difference for employee ownership who is asking these questions about how it works, meaning what kind of impact does it have for, for individual employees, for businesses, and for communities. Folks wanting to understand the answer to that question could really go to one place instead of having to, you know, it, it takes a special kind of person to really go and read all the studies and go to 20 different websites. And some people do that, but there's so many more of us who I think if we can have one, one thing we can read that can answer that question, then we can really focus on creating more of it. So that's, that's the goal of the paper to, to make it clear that there's plenty of evidence that it works and then to get us all moving to a conversation about how we can grow employee ownership faster. That is so important and, and very sincerely thank you. And I say that as somebody who tries to um, stay up to speed on employee ownership as best I can. It really is all that I do. And one of the things that frustrates me on occasion is we all hear the anecdotes and uh, but sometimes the actual data shifts a little bit, um, and there are certain things that that for me have been a little bit tough to uh, quantify or or understand. Uh, and it ties in broadly with you know why isn't employee ownership more broadly adopted? But for example, yeah. uh, when Lewis Kelso wrote uh, one of his seminal books on employee ownership and ESOPs in 1996, he referenced there are there were 6,800 ESOPs at that time in '96. Mm-hmm. And the mm-hmm. association, uh, uh, their data in the fall said 6,200. And so I have conversations with yeah. people like you and, and, and all the time about, 
wow, this really is the good stuff. You know, employee ownership just is really solid on lots of reasons, but we've dropped 10%, you know, in, in, in mm-hmm. 25 years. So it's overcoming that battle, and I think having a concise resource and putting the argument together will be an important resource for all of us in employee ownership, and I, I really appreciate you spearheading uh, that. I think it's going to be important. I hope so. I hope so. And, and let me just add, Brett, that there's, there's also an uh, organization called the Institute for the Study of Employee Ownership and Profit Sharing at Rutgers School of Management and Labor Relations, and they have 100-plus research fellows at this point. Um, so I think there will be more good research coming out all the time. Um, my paper won't capture it all, but I, I do hope it will be that tool that you're that you're speaking to, um, and other organizations like NCEO and the Democracy at Work Institute are, you know, building up their research program so we can just keep proving the case and then keep getting that information out there. You mentioned directing the white paper, hoping to put it in front of philanthropies, and I find that very interesting. And I just, what is the goal of the philanthropies? Would they fund education? Would they fund transactions? Would it be everything? But, but in terms of the philanthropic organizations you hope to educate or attract, what's the goal with that? The goal is to get more of them engaged with employee ownership to support, as you say, education is, is the part that's really hard to fund. So because, for example, in the transition, employee ownership transitions, most of the companies that, that we and others work with can, can afford to pay for the services of the professionals who are, are getting them through these transitions. I think there is a need for, for R&D around making the transition less expensive and, and faster or easier in some ways, and foundations can help to, to fund kind of the new product and service development by folks who work on those deals. But the hardest part to fund is really the the education of business owners, of the trusted advisors of business owners, of capital providers, um, really what we in the nonprofit space sometimes call field building, but in the business world we would say the building of demand. Um, and then the other part would be to get, get foundations and, and corporate funders more involved in supporting the, the success of these models of employee ownership with with low and middle wage workers especially, and sometimes that does really benefit from a deeper level of capacity building that not all companies will be able to provide for their employee owners. So that's the other place that we'd like to see more philanthropic capital engaged. I love throughout this conversation, Hillary, you've talked about some things that, that again, are not necessarily new. I've heard them talked about, I've talked about them myself, but you're connecting yeah. dots in the way in a way that, that that I hadn't heard discussed before, and that gives you a lot of credit because a lot of us are trying to get the word out, and you've actually, uh, uh, you know, I started doing a podcast to get the word out. You've come with, with very specific approaches that I think are going to do just a great job, so, so that's very exciting. Thank you. I hope so, that, and that's really, really good to hear. I think there's so much, so much interest in employee ownership, especially since the Great Recession, um, I've certainly seen, you know, I've been involved in, in this work going back to my 20s when I was originally an employee owner, but really, really is my full-time focus since 2003 and definitely have seen an uptick since the Great Recession. And our hope is really that this this time is a time when we can build it in in a much more mainstream way into the recovery and into a building an economy that's more resilient. Um, and I'd love to actually just share a couple of uh, final data points that are really relevant to today. Looking back at the Great Recession, um, a couple of studies were done, one by by Doug Cruz and his his colleague, that 
that have indicated that during the Great Recession, employee-owned companies did much better and employee owners did much better than non-owner, non-owners um, who were not in employee-owned companies. So the two data points I wanted to share were that in 2010, at the height of the Great Recession, non-owner employees were almost five times as likely to be laid off as employee owners, almost five times as likely. So employee owners were more likely to keep their jobs. And in addition, it's really interesting to look at research that Corey Rosen did from the National Center for Employee Ownership, and I'll just choose one data point from 2010. He showed that the implied federal savings of of federal money that didn't have to go to supporting laid-off workers was $23 billion for the recession year 2010. So if governments can save billions of dollars because employee-owned companies are not laying off workers, or are you know creating creating more wealth and more more sustainability for those workers? I think that this is something that that government and and others in our in our community should get behind. The governments, federal, state, local, will save money. The employee owners will do better. Jobs will stay in the community. I haven't come across a downside specifically to employee ownership outside of the normal business challenges. You know, we always say that, mm-hmm. that employee ownership won't make a bad business a good business, but it can make a, a yeah. good business a great business. But I've never come across, you know, once you get past the RESOP transactions, too expensive, depends who you ask or, you know, how it is. Once you get past stuff like that, employee ownership, when it's operating, there just hasn't been a downside to it, you know, or not at least not one that can't be overcome. Hillary, you're you're doing very important work, and and you just seem to be approaching it with uh, compassion and wisdom. I appreciate all of that. Is there anything by way of closing up you wish I had asked that that I hadn't? We have covered so much. I really appreciate your your curiosity <laughs> and your passion for this. And as I've told you, I I love the ESOP podcast, and I'm so great that you've you've added it to all the ways that we're reaching out to educate people about employee ownership. So I can't think of anything else, and I thank you so much. I appreciate Hillary coming on the podcast. I look forward to sharing more about the great work of Project Equity in the future. If you'd like to get a copy of the white paper, The Case for Employee Ownership, you can find it at Project Equity's website, which is project-equity.org backslash white paper. Thank you so much to Hillary Abel and Allison Lingane both for the work they're doing and for coming on the podcast and allowing us to share their stories. If you're doing something interesting in employee ownership, or you know someone or some organization that is, please let us know because we'd love to share their stories as well. And if I may ask a favor, if you like the work we're doing on the podcast, please subscribe or follow us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're kind enough to retweet or repost when a new episode comes out, I'll be very grateful. Thank you so much for joining me today. My thoughts are with you as we all continue to navigate the unprecedented times brought on by the pandemic. But one thing I'm sure of, we will get through this together. This is Brett Kiesling. Have a good day. We'd love to hear from you. To contact us, find us on Facebook at Kesop LLC and on Twitter at ESOP Podcast. To reach Brett with one T, email brett at kesop.com on LinkedIn at Brett Kiesling, and most actively on Twitter at EO underscore Brett. Again, that's one T. This podcast has been produced by the Keysop Group, technical assistance provided by Third Circle Inc. and Bitsy Plus Design. 
Original music composed by Max Kiesling. Archival podcast material edited and produced by Brian Kiesling. And I'm Vitsy McCann.